Welcome to a special installment of Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. After years of conflict with deep roots in the Tsarist and Soviet Russian imperial moments, Euromaidan in Ukraine, Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the ongoing conflict since in the Donbass, Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine as of February 24, 2022. More than a million Ukrainians have fled the country. Thousands of Russian anti-war dissidents have also fled Russia, while NATO and many nations worldwide have imposed harsh sanctions on the Putin government. For its part, Canada has leveled a series of sanctions on key Russian figures and institutions, has pledged funds and armaments, and is also working on expediting immigration and counselor processes for those looking to leave the region. In this episode, I welcome a number of esteemed Queen's University scholars in a roundtable discussion about the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine, Russia itself, and the West. With us today are Drs. Jane Bolden, Shusha Chergo, Thomas Hughes, and Kim Nossel of Political Studies, and David Didomasi of the Smith School of Business. For our discussion today, our guests will explore the question of the Russian invasion's broad impacts through a variety of lenses, including international law, regional stability, foreign policy and trade, and NATO strategy, and more. And with five scholars present with us today for only about an hour of airtime and so much ground to cover, comments will be limited to about three minutes for each speaker. To get the ball rolling, I'd like to invite anyone now to jump in to discuss how this war is justified by the Russian state, but also unjustified from the perspectives of the international community, let alone international law. And the first person to raise their hand is Dr. Thomas Hughes. Take it away, Thomas. Well, I can I can go first. I can go first if, if no one else is leaping in. Okay, so um, the the justification from the Russian side has been, uh, if we're going to be generous, pretty scattergun. There is a whole uh, plethora of rationales that are given uh, from the the Russian state um, to to justify the action. Uh, partly, it is. Um, uh, a long-standing suggestion that Ukraine is not fully part of, uh, is part of Russia, is should not be its own country, uh, and it was illegitimately created uh, through to ideas that actually the um, regime in Ukraine is neo-Nazi and um, the invasion is about removing the, the Nazi party from Ukraine through to supporting uh, Russian separatists in the Donbass region in the east of the country. Uh, so I think the, the the rationale that Russia has given um, really is in in some ways is is domestic uh, from a Russian perspective, uh, but underlying a lot of that is this idea uh, that um, coming closer to Russia is a, a Western or a, a NATO sphere of influence, which makes them uncomfortable uh, and they see as a threat. And we have a hand up from Dr. Shusha Shergo in the Zoom space right now. Take it away, Shusha. Yes. So I I agree with Thomas Hughes that the justification is primarily directed at the uh, Russian domestic audience. The Russian state, specifically Vladimir Putin's government, is fully aware that the international community, with very few exceptions, uh, sees this war as unjustified 
even if there are debates in some quarters internationally about Russian security concerns prior to the war, there are few governments that really matter for Putin that stand with the Russian government in support of its claim that this war is justified. Having said that, this government remains strongly interested in justifying the war domestically for the Russian population. They continue to call it a special military operation that was necessary for defending the self-governing rights of Russia's ethnic kin in Ukraine, and also for defending the self-governing rights of Russians generally. In other words, for defending the sovereignty of Russia in the face of a Western threat that has uh, supposedly materialized in the eastward expansion of NATO and the EU to the point where these institutions uh, from the Russian government's perspective have been incentivizing, that's the Russian story, the Ukrainian government to turn against Moscow and ask for membership in the EU and NATO. So I think it's important to emphasize that this war is that it has been planned and designed and is being implemented by a government led by a president, Vladimir Putin, who has made no secret of his interest in recreating Russian great power status. So there's a larger strategic motivation behind the current war. And uh, President Putin has infamously stated already in 2005 in a, his address to the Russian nation that I'm quoting, first and foremost, it is worth acknowledging that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the country. This is, uh, this is widely uh, cited now. And there was a sequel to that statement by, by President Putin in 2005 when he said, as for the Russian people, it became a genuine tragedy. Tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen found themselves beyond the fringes of Russian territory. So this was a very clear statement in 2005, before the 2008 Bucharest NATO uh, meeting where the NATO leadership decided to, uh, to state that Ukraine and Georgia would at some point become NATO members. So this was years before that of Putin's claim that Russia and Russians were damaged by the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And many Russians heard this as a pledge for a uh, pledge that the Putin government was putting out that it would do something about it. Thank you very much, Shusha. Dr. Jane Bolden is up next. Well, I was just going to follow up on the question of the unjustifiable side of the um, equation from the international community perspective. Um, I think in some ways, it's a statement of the obvious. From the international perspective, what Russia has done is violate you know, one of the basic rules of, and this is a phrase we often hear these days, the rules-based order. Right? Russia has violated one of the basic rules there, which is that you do not invade um, another sovereign state. And leaving aside the you know, basic rule in terms of international life, it's also a basic rule inherent in the United Nations Charter. Um, so Russia has violated um, the charter in addition. Um, so, I mean, Zhuzha mentioned it, right? By calling it a special military operation, Putin is kind of trying to skirt that question. But, you know, from an international perspective, there's, there's no other way to interpret the issue other than that they have been, launched a war against a fellow sovereign state, um, a smaller state. And this is precisely 
um, what the United Nations Charter and the rules-based international order, even if we set aside the United Nations Charter, um, is set up to guard against. Thank you very much for your comments, Dr. Bolden, Dr. Shergo, and Dr. Hughes. Now, let's move into the current military situation in Ukraine as of March the 8th. Let's pass it back to Dr. Hughes. Take it away, Thomas. Sure, absolutely. I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively short, but it's, it's a challenging one because one of the things we really need to, to understand is that when we talk about the invasion of Ukraine, actually we're talking about a number of different military operations that are coming from a number of different directions. The uh, conflict around Kiev at the moment is uh, drawing a lot of attention, rightly, and we'll talk, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why that, that is, but we need to make sure that we don't focus entirely on that. Uh, before I begin talking about exactly where things stand today, there are three other points that I think are really important. Uh, the first, I'm going to shamelessly plagiarize from somebody um, that I read on Twitter, uh, and it's a beautiful phrase, I think, is that, that war doesn't move at the speed of Twitter. Uh, we will talk about some of the challenges that Russia has faced militarily, um, but we need to be careful uh, when we create expectations of the speed with which things change and occur in a, in a conflict. Um, the, the Russian troops in the south have made strong progress, and we, we often talk about uh, the UK-US invasion of Iraq 2003 as uh, showing rapid advance. And we've seen comparable, if not greater, speed in the South. So we do need to be a little bit careful when we talk about um, things stopping or slowing down in, in terms of the conflict. Um, and I mention that because it's a lot of what's been part of the narrative uh, over the past week or so, that the convoy has stopped north of Kiev being the, the big one. Um, the secondly, uh, and similarly, we, we need to be very careful not to extrapolate from single incidents. So we see a lot on Twitter. Um, for example, the tractors dragging away Russian tanks and the like, which is in itself, you know, if it wasn't so serious, it's an amusing idea. Um, but we need to be careful not to then think that every Russian tank is being dragged away by a, a Ukrainian tractor. Similarly, not every Russian helicopter is being shot down by a surface-to-air missile. So I think we, we do need to be careful with that. And uh, I'll talk about some implications in, in a moment. And, and thirdly, when we talk about the, the conflict, and I'm guilty of this a lot, uh, I, I'll put that, that one up, up front, um, we need to be mindful that, that war isn't fought for its own sake. It's, it's a means to an end. It's a means to a political end. If there was another way of Putin accomplishing something, then he may well have done, but this is the, the route that has been chosen. So um, with all that, that said, uh, where do we stand today? So um, what I would kind of ask to start with is to, to picture um, the map of Ukraine. Uh, in your own mind. And you can think of it kind of like a, a rectangle with a little lump on the upper left side. Um, and at the middle at the top, you've got Kyiv. Uh, and the bottom of the middle, you've got Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. In the bottom left corner of that rectangle, you've got Odessa. And the bottom right hand side, you've got Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, with the port of Mariupol uh, also on the bottom right. And then on the top right, you've got another large city, Kharkiv and Sumy, that we've, we've talked about. So essentially, as I said, um, there are multiple axes of invasion here. Uh, the first that we have heard about a lot is the one that comes straight down from the north, straight towards Kyiv, a couple of hundred miles was being traveled there. Um, and um, what we're also um, 
seeing is that there's a, a, an attack that's occurred from, the, from Crimea that's gone both northwest and northeast. So they're, they're pushing kind of westwards towards the, the port of Odessa, uh, and then they're pushing eastwards towards the port of Mariupol, and also to link up with the Donbass, so that you'd have a solid group of Russian forces that are all the way around that, that southeastern corner. And again, another attack on, on Kharkiv. So from the north, as it stands today, there was some imagery that I saw uh, of Russian air, uh, tanks and artillery um, around five mile, uh, 23 kilometers, sorry, outside of, of Kyiv. Um, that convoy does seem to have stopped. Um, and we're also seeing uh, the attacks still coming up um, from the south, but much more quickly. So in terms of positioning, uh, that's where we are. Thank you, Thomas, for that incredible amount of detail coming from all manner of news sources you're watching, I'm sure. Now, let's shift our gears a bit to learn about the impact of the invasion in other areas, including on civilian people, perhaps on governance in both Ukraine and Russia, even trade and infrastructure. I'd like to invite first uh, Dr. David Didamasi from the Smith School of Business to get this get us started, perhaps, uh, on the subject of oil and gas implications. We're feeling it in our pocketbooks, are we not? Sure. I'm going to do two things in my answer. One is I want to plant a seed for my colleagues that I hope they can answer because they're clearly more informed on this than I am. Uh, when I was doing strategic studies and studying in, I did some working with Jane way back in the day. We um, There's this thing called the Powell Doctrine, known after Colin Powell, about launching armed force, which says you should know exactly when you won and what your objectives are and when you're going to stop. I have not heard that from Vladimir Putin. I don't know when and where he has decided he's going to stop. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit later about when does, how does he define winning? Let's get to your question, oil and gas, natural gas reserves. I think it's been an enormous shock to the community, uh, international community, in the sense that I think, to be fair, and I've got an article on the Conversation Canada coming up on this that people might want to read if they want to look at it. Um, Despite our pledges for environmental change, despite our pledges to move towards alternative energies, we're nowhere near ready to supplant oiling natural gas as our primary feedstock in most of our energy sources. And it's gonna take a couple of decades before we are. And that is even a bigger deal in Europe than it is in Canada. And they import al almost all their natural gas from Russia through pipelines. And despite all the um, sanctions you might hear in the newspapers, they haven't cut that off yet. What Biden did today, he cut off imports of Russian oil to the United States, but it's a tiny, tiny part of what the US needs. Um, that's a reality that's been a case for about 50 years now, and it will not be easily changed because it takes a long time to find new sources and for oil companies to ramp themselves up. So the end result being we're paying record prices at the pumps and uh, we have shortages in the system. And it's going to take a while for those things to work themselves out. Thank you, Dr. Dito Masi. Thank you so much. So I'd like to uh, invite others to jump in here to perhaps talk about some other impacts, including uh, the civilian population, perhaps governance, trade and infrastructure. The floor is open. Uh, and here we have Dr. Shusha Shergo jumping in. Right. So, so I'd like to I'd like to comment on on the governance side and what it does to society, and uh, we've seen um, and heard from many commentators, analysts that there is there is a there is an agreement uh, among experts that uh, Putin has miscalculated. 
on many levels. And one of them is, of course, the strength of Ukrainian national resistance to this, what they see as, a, as, a, as an attempt to not just occupy Ukraine, but to deny their nationhood and deny their uh, right to self-determination. And, and the miscalculation was, by many accounts, rooted in, in the fact that after 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became an independent state, for quite a while there was an East-West uh, division um, that showed up in, in electoral results. And, and also when, when um, Putin came to power in Moscow, he became popular because he did represent order and stability and predictability after a decade of the 1990s when there was chaos, when there was deep economic recession, a traumatic change, and, uh, and many Russians also from the successor states of the Soviet Union from the neighboring states now were, were, were uh, uh, moving to Russia. So there was a lot of upheaval. There was trauma, there was uncertainty. There were uncertainties also in identifications, national identities. Remember, Russia never actually had a proper nation building project because then they went from one empire to another empire, from the Tsarist empire to the Soviet empire. And so when Putin came to power and began nation building at the beginning of the 1990s in an imperial fashion, in a way that was supposed to be reinstating Russia's greatness, he did believe that there was a lot of support for that not just in Russia, where he was getting electoral support through the electoral machine, but also among Russians abroad. And so there was an expectation, especially after having seen in 2014 that the annexation of Crimea uh, did not encounter a lot of uh, opposition in, 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 in Ukraine, not, ne nothing close to what we are seeing today. He did miscalculate. And something else that he miscalculated, that he obviously didn't listen to social scientists, was that after the aggression of 2014, this East-West divide in Ukraine began to change dramatically. And even Russian speakers in the Eastern part of Ukraine became more attached to the Ukrainian state. So they see that, so there's a difference between identifying with a language, wanting to transmit it to your kids and teach it in your schools and use it and a cultural identification on the one hand, and uh, citizenship, allegiance to the state on the other. So I think this is very important that it shows us what war can do to nation building, that it actually reinforced the result among Ukrainians and it, it crystallized, it helped with Ukrainian nation building, um, doing the exact opposite of what Putin was expecting. Thank you so much. Are there any further comments from our esteemed guests today to pick up on Dr. Shergo's thoughts? Uh, oh, I see we have uh, Drs. David DiDomasi and Kim Nossel in the Zoom queue. David. Yeah, I'll be quick because I know Kim hasn't quite got in yet. Um, I would just say, and maybe I hope it's not what he's going to say, but if Putin ever wants NATO alliance to be more unified, <laughs> he's done it. Right? I mean, he thought the West was divided and weak, and he and it sort of takes on the point that Jesus was just saying that made the Ukrainian nation powerful. It appears to me it's made NATO powerful again, and I just wanted to drop that little hint in, and I'll hand it over to Kim. Thank you so much. Now let's hear from Dr. Kim Nossel. Thanks. For 
Thank, thanks very much. I'm, I actually uh, um, I'm following along uh, uh, David's observation about uh, the, the war aims. Uh, in, in, in essence, it seems to me that, uh, that uh, the, the Russian Federation continues um, to uh, have maximal war aims, um, and we haven't seen any indication at all uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Putin uh, has changed uh, what he set out to do on the 24th, which is essentially to uh, uh, strip uh, Ukraine uh, of its sovereignty. And, uh, and so that from that point of view, it's, it becomes very difficult to try and determine um, uh, what, the, uh, what the end result is, other than what he himself has been saying, uh, really, as, as uh, Zhuzha has said, uh, since, uh, the, uh, since the 2000s. Um, not only what he said in 2005 to the Russian people, but what he said at the Munich conference uh, in 2007, uh, what he even said uh, in his first meeting with the NATO secretary, the new NATO secretary general in 2009, which was that, uh, that he wanted NATO uh, to be disbanded. Uh, and uh, so that from that point of view, it seems that uh, he has been quite consistent. Uh, and those, uh, 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 those particular war aims uh, continue uh, uh, to, uh, to be applied. Thank you so much, Professor Nossel. I see Dr. Thomas Hughes has his hand up again. Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. Just to, to pick up on, on both of those and to add something a little bit further to, to Professor Nossel's point, I think um, I completely agree that the aim, Putin's aims have not changed. But I think what we have seen in probably the last 72 hours is a shift in how that is going to be achieved. I think uh, at the start of the conflict, there was this belief that uh, Russia could um, take Kyiv in three days, that it would be a rapid collapse of a government and they would just basically take the country and infrastructure in, intact. I think what we've seen the last three days is uh, a willingness a willingness to destroy Ukrainian cities. Uh, and that is a, a very different way of fighting um, that, that essentially he's happy to take over a pile of rubble uh, rather than that complete infrastructure. And a, a quick point on NATO as well. I, I completely agree with the, the idea that this has brought NATO together in a way that I'm sure he didn't want or anticipate. But I do think that we mustn't see this as a, as a foregone conclusion. I think there was a real chance as the conflict started that NATO would end up more divided. I, I, I think that there was a possibility that NATO um, might have been split on how it was going to approach this conflict how much support Ukraine was going to get, as opposed to simply putting more NATO troops in NATO members. Uh, and so we've seen, I think, uh, uh, something occur which Putin would not have wanted, but perhaps wasn't a sure thing on day one. Thank you so much, Thomas. I see Kim Nossel would like to jump back in. I did. Um, essentially, we also shouldn't take for granted uh, the persistence of... Uh, uh, NATO uh, unanimity, as we have seen. Um, uh, keep in mind that uh, that uh, it made it made a huge difference that it's President Biden uh, in the White House uh, in this particular conflict. Uh, when we look at what is happening in the United States uh, and the possibility uh, that the what has been uh, called the the sort of the Putin wing 
of the Republican Party uh, comes to power uh, in, uh, in the next couple of years, uh, that will have a huge impact uh, on, uh, on NATO unity. Oh, thank you so much. And now if we can pick up on the conversation about NATO, I'd like to invite Dr. Jane Bolden to lead the discussion on what NATO strategy has been toward Russia and Ukraine and, and, and how it has evolved since the invasion as well. Where are we at? Dr. Bolden, take it away. Well, we're at a, a very interesting point and that kind of builds on on what Kim and, and David have been saying um, and Thomas as well, which is NATO is quite unified at the moment quite strong in its reaction to what's been going on um, with respect to the Ukraine and Russian actions. Um, and in a, you know, we've been focused on the question of unity, but I would also say it makes it that much more attractive to any of the states that are not NATO members um, still, but are in that general region. Um, because one of the things that's emerged very clearly is a consistent message Kim's point notwithstanding, but what might yet come in terms of US leadership, but a consistent message from the Biden administration that NATO's territory will be defense, defended to the inch. And the very fact of the invasion in, against a non-NATO state um, drives home the protection that people, that people, that states seek um, in an arrangement like NATO. So not only do we see a unified NATO, but we see a NATO that's even more attractive than it might have been previously to states looking for that kind of security protection. Um, and you have to then also layer that with the fact that the UN is essentially sidelined here um, for the very fact that the Russians are a permanent member, they have a veto, um, that's meant that the Security Council is blocked. Um, the General Assembly has had an emergency session and had a resolution result from that. But the bottom line is that the UN is, is, and the UN is much more than that. And the UN is involved in responding to the conflict in various other ways, um, refugees, UNICEF, and so on. But the core function of peace and security is not in play here with respect to this conflict because of who Russia is and their position on the Security Council. So for other states, they can't look to the UN for a, a source of security in this moment. Right? And that reaffirms the NATO role. So that piece, and then we see NATO reacting strongly, political, economic, um, and um, humanitarian issues as well, um, rising to that occasion on, on each of those streams of, of uh, response. Thank you, Dr. Bolden. Uh, David DiDomasi, I see your hand up. Yeah, a couple of things about what's been said over the last five minutes that I'm going to just elaborate a bit upon. One is all of a sudden it's, it's okay to spend money on national defense again if you're not the United States. Even our own prime minister was open to it. And, and that is a kind of a first, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, the German chancellor, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment to if Angela Merkel was still running Germany, would there be the same response as we have seen in the, with the new chancellor, but that's irrelevant. Uh, we are going to spend more money. We are going to transfer military aid, not just humanitarian aid. We and so there might be, in, in, in the business lexicon, because I happen to work at a business school, a boon in defense stocks, you know, defense production material, because I think people will be spending money on it. Secondarily, this war has implications not just in Europe. Um, 
other people are watching and watching the collective response of NATO to this particular one. There are other places in the world that also have territorial um, disputes, shall we say. The biggest one by far is Taiwan. Uh, and and, and China is a much bigger player than Russia is actually, if you take a look at it across the board in terms of power resources. So, and as Jane just said, the UN is looking kind of sidelined here. So countries are gonna be looking to themselves. You might see arms buildups, not just in Western Europe, but Japan, you know, Taiwan might buy a bit more than, you know, it, it might set off a spiral, a spiral where countries say, hey, I'm on my own a little bit here. I need to make sure I've protected my own house. Thanks so much. Now let's hear from Dr. Shusha Shergo. I would like to uh, bring it back a little bit to uh, the way Russians and in fact, East Europeans generally see NATO and the EU as part of the same Western network alliance. And so there is an ideological undercurrent here that I think needs to be also highlighted that the reason why Putin's uh, discourse about Russia and Russians being uh, damaged, having been damaged by the collapse of the Soviet Union and being damaged by NATO coming too close and the EU's influence is that there is this ideological underlying uh, statement there that Western style liberal democracy is chaotic, it's inappropriate for Russia and Russians, and they have a better model. And all these other governments that are showing interest in it, that are asking for inclusion, not just NATO is of course the security uh, part dimension of this, and, and it's scarier, but the European Union is is the institution, the transnational institution that represents the kind of liberal democracy that they do not want to see, that Putin, uh, his government does not want to see in Russia and does not want to see in, in the Caucasus and in Eurasia. And they have actually been doing, taking steps, measures to, to destabilize countries that have had governments that have been that have been interested in 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 Europeanizing, in joining the European Union, in becoming allies of the European Union. So let's not forget that Georgia, that that the Putin government has contributed in Moldova, for example, since the 1990s in destabilizing Moldova, because Moldova is one of those likely post-Soviet uh, uh, states that, that are interested, where governments are interested in, in the EU liberal democracy model as opposed to Russia's model. Therefore, Moscow has been incentivizing the secessionists there who created a de facto state of Transnistria. Georgia, right? 2008 in Georgia. And, and, and then Ukraine after 2014. So, so they know very well that if they destabilize these countries that have political elites and populations and an increasing majority of populations interested in that type of pluralist democracy, they have to destabilize it. If they do destabilize it, then these countries are not gonna be good candidates for EU membership either, right? So, so I think that that's an important part of this conversation that although obviously these are separate transnational organizations, they have different functions that in the minds 
of many people in Russia and also in Eastern Europe, they're seen as, as two dimensions of, of the same Western network. Thank you, Dr. Zhergo, for that and, and for bringing in the regional situation as well. And, and with that, I'd like to shift gears here, if we may, to talk about the real human impact, especially with the mass movement of people leaving Ukraine and also di- dissidents leaving Russia. What's happening in the region to support the influx of refugees? Zhuzha, I'd like to hear your thoughts here as well. Yes. So when we think of the implications, impact on the broader region, obviously a major one is the humanitarian disaster that's been triggered by the war, the refugees fleeing from Ukraine, also some some fleeing also from Russia, but especially from Ukraine to neighboring countries, primarily Poland, Hungary, Romania. And uh, this is, this obviously, it's um, heartwarming to see that these societies are ready to take the refugees. Of course, we have to mention that there is a European uh, racist aspect of this as well, that, that, is, that, is, that is visible. We also want to mention that. But if you, th- if you think of especially the historic uh, divisions between, uh, between Poles and Ukrainians, it's, 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 it's it's good to see that the Polish society is, is helping uh, refugees from, from Ukraine, that there, you know, there have been, there are conflicting historiographies that create, have created divisions also between Ukrainians and Romanians, between uh, Ukrainians and Hungarians. And to see that these societies are, are ready to help Ukrainian refugees is, is a good thing. But we also have to remember that this, the pace and volume of this refugee flow, this wave, is really quite unprecedented. And it's not as though we have not seen, we have not seen similar instances. More recently, Syrian refugees. I was also among a group of um, Queen's faculty members who have sponsored Syrian refugees. There, We've seen uh, the devastation of the the flow of, of, of Rohingya uh, refugees, for example. So there are other ex- Afghan refugees. So there are other examples as well. If you think of the volume of Ukrainian of the Ukrainian refugee wave that we see today, it's it's I, I believe it's quite unprecedented, the pace of it, the flow of it, and we also have to think about how this is going to impact neighboring societies that are that have small, small populations. So if 4 million Ukrainians flee, that's about what, 10% of the Ukrainian population. Those are high numbers for East European countries. And if these economies become impacted, damaged by the war, then it's actually quite likely that we are going to see anti-refugee sentiment emerging again. It's going to lead to certain conflicts that we don't necessarily see today. And we do need to mention also that we are living in a world in which there's a climate crisis that is expected to result in further major refugee flows in the future. And so when states, governments should be investing resources into slowing down, preventing the effects of climate crisis, instead, you're back in a world of arms race, something that uh, David has also mentioned, and how this is going to impact these societies. So there's a lot, obviously, that we don't see that we don't know yet, but it's important, it's important to mention. 
Okay, thank you for those insights, Dr. Cherko. Now, let's open up the floor to further international implications, particularly in the realm of international sanctions. I wonder if international sanctions go far enough, uh, what are the intended goals and potential unforeseen consequences of sanctions, and further, can sanctions be enforced in such a way as to ensure success in this scenario, and as well, can Russia survive sanctions? Uh, perhaps we can uh, invite Dr. Kim Nossel to uh, start us off in this part of the conversation. Thanks very much. Uh, it, it, it has to be said that the, that the uh, messaging around the purpose of these sanctions uh, has tended to be rather scattershot. Um, uh, it, it, These the sanctions were imposed in, uh, with a variety of purposes in mind, uh, and some of those purposes you will hear uh, leaders say, well, we're imposing sanctions uh, in order to force uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Russian Federation to withdraw. Uh, some say that they're uh, imposed uh, simply for punitive purposes, in other words, to, to punish uh, Russian uh, wrongdoing in, in this case. Uh, the, when we look at the sanctions, I think it's important to recognize uh, that these sanctions are not going uh, to uh, cause uh, Vladimir Putin uh, to reconsider uh, his uh, 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 his particular program, um, his particular campaign. Uh, what they will do, surely, uh, is to increase the costs uh, to the Russian Federation. Um, and so, from that point of view, I think it's it's important to recognize uh, that uh, that uh, these were imposed with particular ideas in mind, but. Uh, we also have to recognize that once this uh, worldwide movement, because it, it pretty well is worldwide, uh, what you find is, is uh, what some people are calling sort of self-sanctioning. In other words, where uh, corporations in particular uh, wonder about the costs, uh, the marketing costs of continuing to do business. And even though they are not required by their governments uh, to uh, to cease business, what we've seen is is a uh, a fairly large movement of uh, companies uh, to simply decide uh, that they don't want to be seen uh, in any way to uh, to be supporting the Russian Federation. So just this afternoon, for example, uh, McDonald's uh, has announced that that it's closing all of its stores temporarily uh, in the Russian Federation. And so we've got to see the the sanctions. Uh, as, uh, as a kind of a mixed bag uh, in this particular response. Oh, and now I see a lot of hands coming up in the Zoom conversation. I'd like to invite Dr. David Dito Massey, uh, as well as Thomas Hughes, back on the air. And, oh, there's a hand as well from Dr. Jane Bolden. So take it away, David. Okay, yeah, the sanctions. A couple of things about sanctions. Um, when there's a problem and countries don't want to go to war to fight it, they, the, the thing that goes through their head is we need to do something about this. Sanctions are something. Therefore, we're going to do sanctions. And, and that's sort of where they, they spring from. And then we'll figure out the logic and the skill and where they're going to go. 
And in the first place, sure, it's going to hurt some Russian oligarchs. I mean, if you're in the market to buy a yacht and you're a billionaire, you might be able to get one on the cheap right about now. But the, the only thing that's really going to affect Vladimir Putin is outright bans and boycotts of Russian oil and gas. It's 80% of their economy. And so far, they're not going to do that for reasons I've allocated. I've talked about a little bit earlier. We, we can't do that quite right now. What it will do is create what's called an investment hangover or original sin. People will remember this, and they'll remember this for decades. There's always been a huge amount of political and regulatory risk in operating in Russia, but it was worth it. You know, if you could make enough money, you could tolerate it in oil and gas, and other companies have techniques for managing it. Now, every company that's going to try to do an investment in Russia for the next three or four decades or not longer is going to have in the back of their mind that this happened and this could happen. And I'm not going to invest as much. I'm going to require higher levels of return before I do. And you're going to see a general slowdown in the Russian economy. And the final point I'll make, this is really problematic when you're talking about carbon emissions in the oil and gas sector. Now, Canada, I would argue, has worked very hard to improve the amount of carbons its production of oil generates. Without significant external investment in technologies, Russia won't be able to do that even if it wanted to. It'll still have a pretty dirty sector. And that's going to slow down um, efforts to improve the state of the world uh, in, in terms of carbon production. So you're going to have investment hangover, you're going to have kind of a slowdown of the Russian economy, and you're likely going to have a slowdown on some of these other broader societal goals we've been talking about for couple of decades now. So not trivial. Thank you, David. Now let's hear from Dr. Thomas Hughes. I just want to pick up on, on the, the previous two speakers. I, I couldn't agree more with, with them, really. I think it's they've, they've really outlined things very well. But but just to nuance it a little bit further, I was talking at Kim Russell slightly earlier today about the, the sanctions. And I, I have some concerns with, with the conversation that has occurred around them, or rather the lack of conversation. And in particular, kind of the, the link to theory around deterrence and coercion requires clear communication. And in that case, I'm not sure that we're seeing it here. So again, what are the function of this sanction? The, the question about do sanctions go far enough? Well, for that to be answered, we need to know what the aim of those sanctions were. And because we haven't put that, that kind of outcome uh, and uh, on the, the sanctions themselves, from a Russian perspective, they don't necessarily know when those sanctions are going to be lifted. So, for example, if they pulled out of Ukraine, do sanctions stop? Or do they also need to give Crimea back? Or do they also need to give the Donbass region back to Ukraine? Where do they go? So we need to have a clear idea of what the sanctions, when the sanctions are going to be lifted. And from a personal perspective, the, the sanctions on the oligarchs is a fascinating approach, these targeted sanctions to try and get them to essentially turn on Putin. But I'm not aware whether any guarantees have been given, whether their Italian villas or their fancy boats are going to be given back to them in the event that Russia does change course. So if I believe that my beautiful villa on a lake in Italy is just going to be given to the Italian state, even if Russia withdraws from Ukraine, what's the point in me continuing to, to try and overthrow Putin? I might as well carry on with that approach. So I think we need to be really careful about working out the, what happens at the end of this process, not just what the sanctions are doing now. 
And more hands have gone up in the Zoom conversation, but let's hear from Dr. Jane Bolden first, followed by Dr. Zsuzsa Zsergo and Dr. Kim Nossel. Take it away, Jane. Well, everybody's been doing such a good job of covering the t- territory. <laughs> um, so I would just pick up on two, two points. Um, and I'll start with that last one with uh, um, that Thomas was talking about and just bring it back to a broader level in that sanctions. So the use of sanctions over time has evolved considerably, but traditionally one of the roles is simply to send a signal one step short of war. Right? We're not going to war, but at this point, but we're sending this signal that, you know, we're that close and we are that, you know, the sending group of states, we are that upset with your behavior and we see it as this level of violation, we're going to impose sanctions. So I think Thomas's point is excellent that we at this stage don't have, in a lot of these instances anyway, a direct line between if this, then sanction X is off or continues until the following things um, occur. But that's, I think, symptomatic of an initial short-term broader response that is just signaling um, in a, in a um, uh, at a strategic level, for lack of a better um, phrase. And that links to my second point, which is one of the things that's really interesting about the sanctions, but the economic measures writ large, not just traditional sanctions. And Kim was referencing some of these, you know, the various corporations taking their own measures, for example, is that we're seeing in a way, and again, this is where the question of how long this is going to last plays in, a cordoning off externally driven cordoning off of Russia, Belarus to some extent, depending on how things play out, it could include the other CSTO members who are the, the CSTO is the kind of NATO equivalent for Russia, which involves a few of its neighboring states. Um, That takes us to a situation that's not exactly the same, but not far off what we saw during the Cold War, which was internally imposed, the Soviet Union, having its own internal economy um, and having relatively limited connection, um, you know, not zero, but relatively limited connection to the international economy. So this time externally driven and um, gradually limiting um, Russia and its allies um, in terms of their connectedness to the international economy. And again, the others have mentioned this too, like so much depends on how this plays out and how long it will take as to whether that's going to be a long-term outcome of this or a relatively short-term one. Thank you, Jade. Now let's hear from Shusha, uh, followed by Kim. Yes, following up on what Jane has said about the significance of how long this is going to take, I believe we need to also consider that economic sanctions usually are um, have, a, have a, an impact not necessarily immediately, but they take time to have some impact. And the impact is not necessarily what we, what those who are imposing the san- sanctions have in mind. So uh, the powerful are more likely to figure out how to, <laughs> how to continue living well under those sanctions. And uh, those who are vulnerable are going to be um, ordinary people. And not just in, as Jane mentioned, also in some of these countries that are linked to to Russia in in various ways. And I was also thinking that 
you know, work transforms human relations, it transforms social relations, but attitudes toward war change as well. So if the war drags on for too long, then among the effects that we might see is that all this admiration today for the Ukrainians' resistance to occupation and Ukrainians is going to fade away and refugees are going to possibly be scapegoated, right, for economic issues and, and the recession that, that people are seeing across the region and across Europe. So those are among the many um, unforeseen <laughs> unforeseen uh, consequences, this is definitely one of them that we need to consider. Thank you for those insights, Drs. Bolden and Sherko. Now let's uh, get some final thoughts from Dr. Kim Nossel on this topic. Uh, two quick comments. Firstly, uh, on the targeted sanctions against so-called oligarchs. Uh, I, I think that uh, much of our discussion uh, in the West about uh, oligarch sanctions uh, assumes that oligarchs, if they wished, uh, could move against uh, President Putin. Uh, and I think that uh, that, that assumption uh, is, a, uh, is a, a deeply problematic one. Uh, Mr. Putin has been able uh, to oligarch-proof uh, his administration. Uh, and so that we shouldn't assume uh, that uh, the, the oligarchs uh, have that capacity. The second thing to note, by the way, is that, uh, and this uh, is a comment on Juja's notion that sanctions uh, work slowly, uh, that uh, there is uh, there are a number of people uh, in the Russian Federation, certainly including, I think, the president, uh, who would see sanctions uh, uh, forcing Russia into a more autarchical uh, position as something fundamentally good. And so that uh, when, we, when we see, for example, the uh, medium term impact uh, of, uh, for example, sanctions uh, by both uh, Airbus and Boeing uh, against uh, the, the, the Russian civil aviation fleet, uh, we need to keep in mind that there are lots of people in the Russian Federation who think that that actually is a good thing. And thank you very much, Dr. Nossel. And now, being mindful of our time, I'd like to move on to our last topic, and this is uh, specific to Canada. What, uh, what has Canada's position been toward the war, and how has this war modified its trade or, or defense policies? Uh, perhaps Drs. Nossel and Bolden would like to jump in here. Kim, can you take it away? Okay. Uh, essentially, what we've seen is, is Canada has moved along with uh, its, its, uh, its other allies. Uh, and just as Yuzha says that, uh, uh, notes uh, that uh, the wars uh, change folks, uh, uh, absolutely we can see uh, that the, uh, the Trudeau government has shifted position quite, uh, quite dramatically. I think that it makes a, um, a considerable distance, uh, a considerable uh, difference. Uh, and uh, it's appropriate uh, given what day it is, uh, International Women's Day to note. Uh, that uh, Canada's uh, uh, response to uh, the, uh, the war is in fact led by um, uh, the three women who are in the, uh, the, the senior portfolios, uh, Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, uh, Melanie Jolie, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Anita Anand, uh, the Minister of National Defense, uh, that, uh, that these ministers have, have moved Canada quite dramatically. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, that that is something that uh, that perhaps 
looking at uh, the overall uh, uh, period of uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, in power uh, probably came as a bit of a surprise to a, a number of critics of this government. Thank you, Dr. Nossel. Now let's hear from Dr. Jane Bolden. Yeah, I agree with everything Kim's just said, and we just add a, a couple of things. We've already mentioned the um, announcement about defense spending, the likelihood that defense spending will go up. Um, um, I think we're probably going to see other, um, not just budgetary, but other kinds of decisions come over time in the next little while, um, short and medium term, um, as we will see with other NATO countries. Um, um, in terms of shifting their way of thinking about NATO, about forward deployments, about their military spending. I think Canada's overall been um, living up to what we would expect for it, from it in this situation um, across political, uh, military, economic uh, measures and humanitarian. I would say I hope that on the refugee issue, there is more to come. It seems to me that we had to you know, see the government pushed into making some adjustments. Um, that's what they are, um, not a new policy, but an adjustment to existing policy in effect by creating a second, um, um, what's the phrase, channel, if you like, um, for refugees in this specific instance, having been unwilling to waive the visa requirement for Ukrainians. The um, so I hope that the government has learned from the slowness of its response and the criticism it received and the fact that there are still Afghans waiting to come to Canada since August um, because of slow paperwork, slow government response. And I hope that we will see a stronger, more... Um, so let me even be more specific. I hope, and if the government's doing this already, then it should say so more uh, openly, but I hope they're planning to forward deploy people to the region to, in order to assist refugees in dealing with paperwork that makes it possible for them to come. I hope the government's planning to charter aircraft in order to bring people over. I hope that it's also supporting the frontline countries, Poland in particular, with whatever it needs. And we need to remember with the refugee crowd that we're not talking about traditional um, refugees in the sense that, and again, it's International Women's Day, a huge percentage of these refugees are women and children separated from their families. These are not likely en masse to be people who want to stay. They want to go home. They want to reunite with their family. And the other portion are elderly who haven't had as much attention, but certainly deserve it. And I think they haven't had as much attention because they're just not able to move in the same way. And so it would be useful and interesting to see the government have a specific policy on that as well. Thank you very much, Jane. Now I see a hand from Dr. David DiDomasi. Yeah, um, my colleagues have talked about the strategic NATO side. I'll talk a little bit over the trade and economic side. Um, I think the Biden administration, the Trudeau administration, have painted themselves into a little bit of a corner, again, on oil and gas, simply because that's what I know. Um, uh, right now, the Biden administration has promised to go ask OPEC, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, and these are to increase their oil production. He hasn't yet called Canada and said, or, or you're going to hear, why haven't we built that pipeline? You know, why aren't we increasing domestic production? By overpromising the ability to transition off of oil and gas as quick as they had hoped to, it has become clear that we're not there yet. And then to go ask essentially other dictators in the world to increase their production cap in hand 
so that we can take you know deal with this other dictator in Russia. I mean, it's gonna it looks doesn't look great. Kim was talking about this a little earlier about the changeover in potential changeover in the U.S. administration. They got midterms in November, and the Democrats are not looking good. And all of this will, there might be a sea change in attitude in the United States in about six months about what they can and can't do. Um, and uh, that will bide very heavily for Canada, for good or for ill, depending on your outlook. Thank you very much, David. And with that, uh, are there any final thoughts from anyone about any of the topics that we've covered today that you'd like to uh, chat about before we close? Oh, and here we have Thomas Hughes. Take it away, Thomas. So just as a, a final, um, deeply depressing thought, I'm afraid, but I think it, it needs to be said. Uh, and I, to pick up on, on what Juju was saying earlier, because I think it, it raises a really important point. The, the, the reality on the ground is that Ukrainian forces are holding their own, but being pushed back everywhere. This could end up in a rapid defeat for, for Ukraine. Uh, it may take much, much longer, but it looks likely that unless a miracle occurs, that is going to happen eventually. And there is a huge decision as to what we do then. I mean, is there going to be the continued funding of an insurgency in Ukraine? I mean, that sounds like a terrible thing to put onto the Ukrainian people. Or are we going to have to accept a Russian-leaning Ukrainian government? And whilst I think it's entirely reasonable and right that we maintain support for Zelensky and the Ukrainian government as it stands and try to support them in the military fight for as long as humanly possible in the hope that they can defeat the Russian invasion, we also need to be having that discussion, even if it's behind closed doors, about what happens next. Because if we have to make decisions on the fly in 12 months' time, we're, we're in trouble. And thank you, Thomas. And now we go back to Shusha. I'd like to comment on how this war is impacting the prospects of uh, democracy, sustainable democracy in Europe, in Eastern Europe and Europe generally. And I'd like to just us to remember that when Ukrainian President Zelensky talks about this fight, the Ukrainian people's resistance as protecting, defending democracy in Europe as well, that there is a kernel of truth to that. When we think about how this government of Russia, the Putin government has been, has been destabilizing also, not just trying to destabilize uh, governments in its neighborhood, but also in the former Yugoslavia, which is quite remarkable if we think about it. So the former Yugoslavia, uh, Yugoslavia was not part of the Soviet bloc, right? After the Stalin-Tito split in 1948. But then now it's quite remarkable to see how much Russian soft power has succeeded to destabilize many of these uh, governments uh, in, in the Balkans, in the former Yugoslavia. And so in that sense, that is something that we also, I think, need to consider that they have been, for example, Bosnia, the Republika Srpska has already begun withdrawing from the common Bosnian Herzegovina institutions and Russia supports Republika Srpska. Dodik, the leader, has hinted recently that if war bro broke out again in Bosnia-Herzegovina, he'd have a good friend in Putin. There's Kosovo, 
Russia supports Serbia and Serbia does not recognize Kosovo. It's unlikely that Serbia will intervene militarily in Kosovo, but Russia has been using the conflict to reassure Serbia of the link, to reinforce the link. And it was good to see that the Serbian government did not did vote for the UN resolution condemning Russia um, in a, a, a few days ago. But they also stated that they will not impose sanctions on Russia. They will remain militarily neutral. And then there's North Macedonia, which is an interesting case where public attitudes have been changing. About 50% of North Macedonians consider joining the Euro-Asia Union led by Russia. This is the highest ratio ever. And so, and North Macedonia has a large Albanian minority. Putin can use that to destabilize. So just generally, as uh, to wrap up this picture, uh, the Russian government can use this war also to continue destabilizing um, governments in the Balkans that might be interested in joining the European Union and helping sustain the kind of uh, pluralist democracy that, uh, that has been built in the last 30 years with ups and downs. We have a hand from David. I just wanted to say thank you to my colleagues. Learned an awful lot for the last hour. Glad I was part of it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And, and thanks to our listeners as well for tuning into Campus Beat today. We've been chatting with doctors Shusha Cherko, Kim Nossel, Thomas Hughes, and Jane Bolden from Political Studies, and Dr. David Didomasi of the Smith School of Business about the many impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thank you all for joining us and, and providing our listeners with an opportunity to learn more from you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Thanks. Take care, everyone.